Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and organisations tick. And as tradition, this week's podcast is brought to you. Hang on, let me have a look at the bottle. Um, apparently a rather interesting bottle of French Syrah. So um, in recent episodes, uh, Gareth, you talked about heuristics and bias. And I have to admit to you, in terms of the term biases, I know a small amount. I know that I am biased. But when you started talking about heuristics, that seemed particularly interesting. And I've not come across this sort of topic before, certainly from a business perspective. So let's talk about that today. But why don't we start, before I make a fool of myself and claim to know anything, why don't we start with sort of a 101. Gareth, what's a heuristic? Heuristic? Heuristic. Heuristic. Yeah. And <clears throat> heuristics and bias, what are they and why are they interesting? So I think I've mentioned this before. But a heuristic is effectively a mental shortcut that you take when making sense of information. So we as humans have evolved to perceive the world based primarily on our you know, primary sense of our eyes. So we, we view the world. But of course we, we have sensory perception in, in lots of other ways. Not least hearing, smelling sensing temperature touch you know all of the senses and there's a whole load of senses that we don't often think about so we, we think about the five senses but of course there's things like balance and your ability to sense where your hands are in relation to your eyes even when your eyes are closed you can so there's actually a lot more complexity in sensing than, than perhaps we think about straight away and as we've evolved to make sense of that world we have created ways of shortcutting really complicated information to make sense of what we need to know in order to make really really fast decisions so if you go back to and i am not in any way um a, a an anthropologist but if you go back to the african savannah of you know a hundred thousand years ago we quite often use the, the cliche of looking for that tiger in the jungle but of course it is about finding food it's about understanding the weather it's about staying with the group and all of these things so we have created ways of interacting with the world without having to think about it so it's probably worth me giving you an example you will all be familiar with the fact that when you see a random collection of dots or a random pattern of things we as humans one of the primary things we see in that randomness is faces the 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 the, the first thing that occurs to me is that this is, first of all, incredibly valuable. And I guess another way of talking about heuristics, an example of a heuristic is a plan. I have written down, if something happens, I've written down five steps for you. So I would, I would imagine heuristics are incredibly valuable, but... And I'm always the one who looks at the downside of this. I don't know that's a particularly English thing, but I would imagine that also heuristics can be incredibly dangerous. Absolutely. So I've looked it up. It's called uh, pareidolia, 
which is the tendency to see faces in random patterns. And, and of course we do that. We see the face of Jesus in a piece of toast. I was or, just about to say, yeah, I have seen yeah. the face. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and we do it. But it's, uh, And there's that famous case of a one of the early images from Mars, overhead image of Martian rocks, and there's a face. Uh, and everybody, well, not everybody, of course, lots of people went, oh, existence of civilised alien life. And of course it's not. It's the particular way the shadows fall on that particular day. And our tendency to see faces and things. It, when you look at it, it's you know two dots and a line. It's not a face, but that's what we do, and we do it in really uh, subtle ways as well. So heuristics are how we are able to park cars, for example. So we as humans are very very good at taking information from the world around us and making sense of spatial awareness. We have two eyes to give us depth perception. And so when you're reverse parking a car, you are not stopping and thinking about, in real time, how far away is that curb in relation to that corner of the car. You, Your brain just does all that for you, but it's making all these mental shortcuts so that you're making assumptions about things without recognising it. And as you say, that can be incredibly dangerous. So for things that we are evolved to do really well like communicate we're pretty good at relying on our intuition so i don't when i'm looking at you now i don't read your facial expressions consciously but subconsciously yeah. i do and i will change the pitch of my voice or whatever again probably subconsciously based on that information feedback so that's a heuristic what i haven't been evolved to do is to make sense of complex statistical data so when i use my gut instinct to invest in the stock market i'm probably going to succumb to the flaws of heuristics rather than the benefits of evolved skills um, and that's why they're really closely related to bias because the difference between a bias and a heuristic is heuristics are ev evolved shortcuts that your brain takes biases are learnt shortcuts that your brain takes so we learn our biases from our environment we live in a world where everyone seems to have very very strong views about whether something is a good or a bad thing and i think the word bias typically implies a bad thing a bias it has a negative reputation, it has a negative reputation. Yeah. so yeah. you know i have a bias which means i am thinking in a way that is not useful to me to be specific but it feels to me like that 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 the term itself and the way we have bias, it perhaps in itself lacks emotion. In other words, it doesn't know that it's good or bad. There's good yeah, bias and there's bad fair. bias. Yeah, absolutely. So, talk, talk to me about... Actually, talk to me about some good bias. So, I, I, I think... I don't think there is such a thing as good bias and bad bias. Oh, tell, talk to me about some bias that <laughs> I think has it's advantage. Context, it's context dependent. Yeah, yeah. So, the reason that we are biased is the same reason that we have heuristics. Because we, as a species, um, excel in operating in groups. So we are naturally inclined to, to group together and build trust relationships with people that look like us, with people that we interact with regularly. Um, and so these things have advantage in terms of very very quickly as a toddler you know learning your way in the world making you scared of strangers and not scared of your parents 
and then eventually your siblings. And so there's a definite advantage there because otherwise you'd go wandering off at the supermarket. But of course, by the time you get to an adult, those biases still exist. And so we are predisposed to perhaps build trust relationships quicker with people that look like us. Mm. So things like uh, the, all the protected characteristics, race, gender, uh, and the, the, the obvious physical characteristics, there is a bias that is natural. Uh, sorry, it's not natural, because I've said it's, yeah. it's from your environment, yeah. but it's learned from a young age. So, and there are definite negative connotations to that, of course. And so being aware of that is really, really important. But there's also biases that we have by the fact that we are just exposed to certain types of information. Mm. Um, and again, this can often be quite useful because it means when there's huge amounts of information, we tend to ha- build biases to trusted sources. I, I, I think this is... But re- again, can be really dangerous. But it's, I think this is a really important point because I think particularly this term bias, as I say, it has a generally negative term and if there's something that these discussions continue to reiterate is there's no simple algorithm to give you the best outcome and so in the same way there are biases which are advantageous and there are biases which are either not advantageous and what I mean by that is they don't lead to the best outcome I guess the trick is well there's a couple of questions how do you know whether something is a useful bias and therefore, you either accept or even accentuate it. Mm. And how do you know that something is a bad bias? Whatever that, or, or not, sorry, I, again, you've got to stop me when I say the word <laughs> good or bad, not advantageous. So yeah. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of what I think is a bias that is not advantageous. And um, I, I would imagine as time goes on, you're going to hear me rail against this, which is. Um, the, one of the things which I hereby declare is not allowed on this podcast or any discussions are terms like woke or snowflake or any of those terms because I don't think they are... I, I don't like them, but I don't even think they're useful. They're oversimplifications. They're oversimplifications. Yeah. But, so so let, let's put, put all of that to one side and anyone who has just been inflamed by me saying woke is a bad word, thank you, you've self-selected whether we think we're interesting... Mm. I think diversity is a hugely advantageous attribute. Yes. So in yep. business, there are people making very large sums of money creating some marvellous diversity training, yep. which are great. And frankly, I think actually sometimes don't even help. From a different perspective, I have worked with teams where they looked and sounded like me and they were good teams. There's mm. nothing wrong with at all. And I've worked with teams where they look very different to me and they have different backgrounds, different contexts. Here's a perfect example. I have worked with offshore engineering teams from India and these were fantastic. And they brought different they brought different concepts, they brought different ideals, they brought different yeah. industry. And actually I've worked in more diverse teams. So for me, as an example, diversity, not because somehow I want to follow some, you know, written down view of how the world should be and coming yeah. back to the I, I like this as a phrase the most effective I can be is often or almost always when I have a diverse team to bring me the best most different ideas that we can pick from yeah I, I couldn't agree more um, I think we we started talking about bias and you brought in diversity very quickly and of course 
the reason that diversity is so valuable in a team is that it is the mitigation for bias. Because we are all biased, but we're all biased in very different ways and to varying degrees. And so by having a diverse team, you end up with the wisdom of the crowd because the biases get cancelled out. Yeah. Um, not only that, but you also then have a wider pool of experience from which ideas can be generated and created. I'm going to be slightly controversial here. There are situations where diversity actually creates inefficiencies. Um, and so, objectively, actually, you want conformity I, and therefore diversity I, can become a problem. I think it's this point about, going back to the very carefully phrased, there are biases that are advantageous mm. and there are biases that are not... That are well, it's, it's, context, it's context dependent. And, and if you think about... The, you know, Frederick Winslow Taylor, kind of the, the godfather of scientific management. This was a guy who was driven by this idea of making business more efficient um, and, and wrote a book called the science, uh, the science of Management. And he effectively came up with this concept of uniformity in production. And he write. I mean, he writes some really quite. Uh, I mean, you look at it now; it's quite repulsive, almost, because um, he he describes people as commodities, and he talks about the fact that you know, if you've got a production line, you want everybody to be the same height and have the same reach, because then you can have all your uh, positions and stations on that production line the same distance. Yeah. Um, you can time that, and he was very precise. It was all about. He he would go round workshops with a stopwatch. And it was all about precision and accuracy and speed. And if you've got something you're trying to achieve that is very fixed, you know what the solution is, efficiency is really, really important to get that competitive advantage. And that's why production lines are standardised as much as possible. And therefore, you don't want diversity. Now, diversity just means different. Well, I'm, I'm not I'm, talking I'm, about. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm not I'm, talking about you know these these loaded concepts. What I'm what I'm simply talking about is uniformity versus diversity in the definition. But I, different I, versus I, the same. I agree, but I think you've, as with all these things, the sort of onion, yeah. onion pieces to pull back, which is, I am in the military. Here you go. I'm not just to be again clear. And therefore, the military's goal is to come up with a common way to defeat the enemy in a way in which I want them all to behave in a common way so that then I can, as it were, control an organisation to do this. So therefore, you would say, well, this is a game of efficiency. I just want them to be efficient. There's a book. And all of a sudden, you're in it. And I yeah. believe that's how... We wear uniforms. The, 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 the Warsaw Pact yeah. had fabulous doctrine, which said, mm. this is what you do. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's a really interesting one, where, where, by the way, I think that's a very valid statement that says we've got 100,000 people. We want them to communicate in the same way, train in the same way. And yet, I would imagine, inherently in that, of, of uniformity, there is a challenge that says... I don't want them to be all uniform because now I know how to defeat that. I actually want to have improvisation. I want to have, I want to have enough difference. And you, you know, absolutely, yeah. And you've 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 jumped the gun on, on where I was going because I was, I was being excellent. controversial to say you know diversity is not always good, but but that's in a in a world where what you're trying to achieve is fixed. You know that I'm trying to produce I don't know 
the Ford Model T. You know, I want every single one to be the same. It's never going to change. It's about efficiency. That isn't the real world. So production lines, which are now mostly done by machines with people supporting... The same reach, the same height. I want my machines to be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas people, we've proven time and time again, we operate in complex environments. And this diversity thing is really, really valuable. And the military is a really, really good example of this. Because as you've alluded to, we've created structures that are the same we've created uniforms we've so rank structures are very very discreet they're very clear they don't change there's no ambiguity we have uniforms we do drill which is marching around parade squares you know where everybody marches in step and everybody and and these all come from a way of fighting conflict a way of fighting wars where managing large bodies of people was really difficult uh, and communication was done by you know writing your notes and then sending dispatch riders on horseback around the battlefield so actually that efficiency was quite useful in managing large bodies of people because you could change what you were doing faster than the adversary if they didn't have that uniformity so paradoxically by starting from a uniform base you had more flexibility to change. At the individual level, at the soldier, they didn't. They had drills and they did what they were told. As communication has got faster, we've found that that flexibility needs to be driven right the way down. So now we're at a stage, and we we talked about this on a previous um, podcast episode where we talked about mission command and the idea of telling people what to achieve but not how to do it Well, that's because, like you said, you can predict how people are going to behave if their drills are written down. The adversary is changing the circumstance and also, you know, random factors like the weather change or or whatever it is. As the circumstances change, if you've got a very hierarchical system, you don't have that agility. And so this is where this combination of um, delegated authority and diverse thinking gives you an unpredictability, which gives you an advantage. It, but it, it seems like it's this it's this really interesting push and pull where uniformity in an organisation is highly valuable because that's how you get a, an increasingly large number of people to go in the same direction. But you also want this, this and I, I'll use the term diversity even though it's different, you want this diversity in approach because that allows you to break free from the limits uniformity and I, there's a yeah. there's as a, as a you know I, we, we, I know we're both fans of of military history and in the second world war the the the, the germans were known they they became famous for the fact that if um, they were attacked the first thing the germans would do is counterattack and this was hugely successful because Literally, even even if they didn't have the troops, they would turn around and the first moment they could counterattack was what they would do because the, 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 the soldiers or the units that originally assaulted them had reached a point of almost exhaustion and then the counterattack would push them back. This so became a culmination. It, exactly. Yeah. On, a, on a tactical sort of battle level, yeah. but it was it was it was well known. In the latter parts of the Second World War, 
as the Allied forces started to understand what the German doctrine was, they not only understood that the Germans would counterattack, this was a primary part of their 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 battle Planning. plan. Because yeah. their battle plan was attack, lose as few people as possible. In other words, not a serious attack. A feint. A feint almost. And then stop and make sure the artillery was pointing exactly where the Germans would counterattack. Yeah. As the latter part of the war went on, because we understood their system, we used it to our advantage. And so there's, that's a really interesting mm. case of, um, you know, the, the, the counterattack doctrine worked incredibly well for a long time. Yeah. Right up until the point where the doctrine failed. So going, going back to that point about sort of balancing... Uh, predictability and order and planning and heuristics with um, with unpredictability and just throwing a sprinkling of bias on there. Here's my question for you. How do you know which to do at which time? Because there's one time when you say, go do the thing that's written in the book yep. and you will all be great. Yep. And there's another point which you say, please throw the book away Excuse because me, that's my no longer... dog is desperate to get out of the room. So that is a fascinating question, and I think this comes back to the the concept of agility, flexibility, and agility. And the the value you get from having uniformity is you get a shared sense of what other people are going to do, and you also have a, at an individual level, a sense of what is required in certain types of situations. What you don't want is that to be the dogma or the um, the orthodoxy that you're not allowed to do something different. What you want is that to be the baseline from which you then deviate as the situation requires. So what that allows you to do is to respond to changing external dynamics. In conflict, it's going to be what the enemy's doing or how the weather's changing or opportunities that arise. In business, it will be exactly the same. It will be what are the competitors doing. It will be the conversation you're having at the time with the client um, and their response. What you want is freedom of action to be able to apply your imaginative thought to respond. So you want a common baseline. And I think the best example of this is the reason we do fire drills. We do fire drills in an office building or wherever you are, and we walk through, so the alarm goes off and everybody is told to leave the building, leave your laptop, don't gather your coat, do all that. You walk calmly to the exit, you make your way out into the car park, and then somebody takes a register to make make sure you're all there. And we all know that isn't how fires work. But that doesn't make the fire drill pointless. What it means is when there is a fire or some sort of emergency, you have a common baseline of what you're supposed to do and then when you're faced with the realities of that dynamic situation you can amend that plan you know where the exits are that exit's now blocked you can now do something different so you you are responsive but from a common starting point I'm, but i'm going to push you on this because i think you haven't quite answered my question yet which is how do you know when to stick with the orthodoxy versus to break it? And we've all been there. There's, yeah. there's, I, 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 I know I've said this multiple times and I will continue to say it, which is I love the fact that we take successful people and we say, ah, well, all we have to do is describe how they behave and you will, dis- you, you will have described to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we will go and say, 
again, to keep the, the sort of the Second World War uh, motif going, is Erwin Rommel was unpredictable. He didn't follow the orthodoxy. He made his own rules and he was brilliantly successful. Fantastic. So if I do that, I'll be successful. Well, actually, I can point yeah. to a number of yeah. military leaders who did that and were appalling and fell miserably. So it, I'll come back to the question. How do you know when to follow the manual and how do you know when to, for want of a better word, don't mean it's literally, throw the manual away and do something different? When, so, do, when do you yeah. walk to the fire, to the fire exit mm. and go to the car park Versus when do you say, I'm going, that's a bad idea, I'm going to go out the window? So I think the answer is easy, the implementation of it is difficult. Um, so I say, when the situation is not working, or when the response is not working. So when you go to the fire exit and it's on fire or blocked, or for whatever reason that is not a viable exit, you're not going to push on because that's the way we were told to do it. Now, that's a very physical and visceral reality. No, no, but I like that. But, I mean, but effectively, you need feedback to say what we're doing isn't working. So I, I think th this touches very much on my world, and there's, there's a concept I want to sort of run by you in a second. But in my world, I work in, they, they describe this as this world, agile development. Yep. which frankly is a word that's designed to make lots of people lots of money to talk <laughs> endlessly about it. But fundamentally, it talks about a loop, and we're not going to talk about OODA loops this week, but no. we will talk about OODA loops. It, it, it is this idea of inspect and adapt. Yes, yeah, a feedback and, loop. And a feedback loop, and if done on a regular basis, it allows you not to say, oh, I'm Kodak. I'm. Yeah. I, I've run out of business. I used. I kept doing the thing I did. Mm. I was massively successful for how many years, and now yeah. nobody wants to buy film anymore. I'm dead. So I think the the inspection and adaptation is what you've just talked about. Oh look, yeah. that door feels hot. Let's not go through that door. I walk to the the I don't know the window. We're up yeah. high. Let's not do that. And you carry yeah. on. I want. I want to bring this. I want to sort of change the spin a little bit into sort of more practical because i think and i i, I actually i touched on this with the concept of um kodak which is sort of a, a story that's told in the industry about a company that in effect followed in the language you've used followed doctrine or followed dogma yeah and then one day they were out i think businesses are average at making plans i'll probably get in trouble we will say my business is brilliant at making plans but we spend lots of time mm. saying you know technical support when a customer phones yep. you pick up the phone yep. you go through the script you do those things so when we when we have expected paths yeah businesses are generally okay to good i think the bit and it, it goes back to this heuristics and bias which is where we started is I wonder whether where business is bad, bad, not good word, whether business isn't as successful as perhaps the military is that when we are forced to react or adapt in a situation we haven't been in before. So the last 10 years, the competition has been static. We understood yep. everything about them. Mm. And on Monday morning, we walk in and all of a sudden we're starting to lose business against a company mm. we've never heard of that's not even selling a product that we recognise. Yep. I think that's the bit that's interesting, which is how do you then, how do you adapt to that? And, yes. and again, it's this idea of 
heuristics say this is how we behave. Bias says, well, I don't, my way is still going to work. They're not going to work. Mm. So what's your sense on that? And maybe, maybe there was a, a more interesting, I don't know whether we've, I can't remember whether we've talked about this before, which is, I think business isn't very good at reacting. I think the military, by its definition, because the enemy aren't on the hill you predicted five years ago. What's your take on that? Uh, although, I mean, there are definitely examples of military failures as a, as a result of them failing to, re- to respond or react. Um, but yeah, I, I take the point, and I think there is definitely more of a it's expected that you're going to come up against a quite radical, volatile change and have to respond. I think um, the Kodak example is, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on it at all, but it, it is rolled out as one of those examples of you know, systematic failure. And I think at, at its core, it was driven by bias because what had always worked was was the orthodoxy. And the reality is that the environment had changed and they were trying to be efficient but they were efficiently wrong and that comes back to understanding where your biases are and the flaws that that creates in your decision making and when we talk about feedback there's two things we have to do firstly we have to have diversity of thought in the way that we think about problem sets and then we also have to have diversity in understanding the information that's coming back in that feedback because otherwise our biases and our heuristics will allow us to pick and choose the information that fits our narrative and we will be driven down this line of yeah i know that's bad news but but we that that's not our fault because and there is you know there, there are these traits of human nature it's, again it's a heuristic and it's a protective heuristic that we've developed that when things go well we congratulate ourselves for really good decision making. When things go badly, we blame it on bad luck or somebody else's mistake. And so if you don't have a team that firstly can think about problems in different ways, so has that diversity, and secondly, can't question the orthodoxy of the senior person in the room to say, well, actually, perhaps this is our fault perhaps we could have done things better perhaps you know, feedback becomes it falls on deaf ears and yeah, becomes an irrelevant I mean I want to I, I want to throw out another concept because I think and, and I want you to apply the, the, the ideas of heuristics and bias to this which is disruption mm. and 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 the value and necessity of disruption so we'll come back to this in a second but the I, I, I'm creative disruption well I was going to say because I, I, I again you know to to, to keep coming back to the I get nervous about reading books like (laughs) you I again I've got to stop saying I'm nervous about reading books because I do love reading books but these kinds of books the the Kodak one seems to be simple and 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 I'm not an expert and I'm sure there are many people that have written books on this entire thing but the statement that Kodak in fact People have said Kodak needed to disrupt themselves. And so actually Kodak are are shown as an example of that sometimes businesses need to disrupt themselves. Mm. Well, first of all, there's 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 that's against the heuristics. There's a bias there. And actually for the for the Kodak one, I would offer up another alternative. Kodak did exactly the right thing. There was a business 
They maximized that business. And if they had disrupted themselves successfully, it was a 50-50 chance they were going to do well. In fact, I would argue they did try to disrupt themselves and they failed. So in fact, Mm. in that case, should they have said, forget the disruption, we are literally going to make as much money from this thing called film until one day we will die and that will be fine. Anyway, to go back... I'm not sure the CEO and the the board of directors, you know, as part of their strategy just said there there is an end point to this. No, but I... There is a lack of adaptability. I, I I actually think that's a bias, which is we must always come up with the next bright idea. Um, in that case, that they were risking the viability of the Kodak business yeah. in their attempts to um, in their attempts to disrupt it. And I, th- I, I'm sure there are people shouting, shouting at their device <laughs> who listen to this, saying, "But it's disrupt or die." And in this case, they failed to disrupt and they died. But I would argue. I, I, so I think the I think term disruption. Yeah, the term disruption is loaded. We it's adapt or die, isn't it? It's yeah, so adapt I think that's, to the market. And, that and I think, I'd like better. Yeah, and I think this comes back to you know recognizing the organic nature of an organisation. So we think of our organisations as machines, and this comes back to that frederick winslow taylor kind of idea of efficient machines a well-oiled machine and the military doing drill you know we we use these analogies we use military efficiency or well-oiled machines and actually we need to start adapting and thinking about our organizations as organic systems that evolve develop and grow but the only way you can do that is if you delegate and push decision making out from mm. the boardroom. Yeah, you have feedback loops as we've talked about, and you have diversity because what you want to do is mitigate out the crazy. So when people, you know, come up with a crazy idea, there's enough people around to say, "What are the problems with that? Will it work? Won't it work?" Rather than just we're not doing it because it's crazy, or we are doing it because it's crazy. And you know, innovation is not about doing the radical change innovation is about implementation of new ideas if the idea is utter bollocks yeah you're going to lose a lot of money so having these adaptive organizations that can learn develop and grow rather than a monolithic structure that has to pivot at a point where it suddenly recognizes the market's changed because it's too late and we know you can't you can't change a culture overnight. We've talked about that. So I think this diversity thing and understanding biases um, links very, very neatly into the idea of psychological safety, delegation of decision-making, and adaptability among, amongst a complex operating environment. I'm, I'm having one of these familiar moments as we have these conversations where just when I think I've vaguely got my head around how I need to work and how I need to behave and how others might be successful, all of a sudden, the the, the, ga- the gaping chasm of the rest of humanity and the world is revealed to me. It's like I've just had a vision of space and it's big and complicated. The, 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 I, I've said this a couple of times, which is, and maybe this ties into the heuristics idea, which is we love to think that it's if A is true, then B will be true and then C will be true. And the reality is it's it's the flapping butterfly in Venezuela Absolutely. that means yeah, that whether yeah. it rains outside or it doesn't rain outside and it goes down to 
it's it's sort of an individual that can that has a bad day which ripples through and says we didn't make the decision to disrupt it's the crazy person who came up with the wrong kind of crazy um i, I i'm maybe maybe this was one of the, the the sort of the the driving tenets for this which is it turns out if you think this stuff is easy you're probably not paying attention which is we can't be brilliant at everything, yeah. But we really have to sort of think carefully about all of these things. Yeah. Um. I, yeah. There's a there's a statement that I've often heard, and again, I think one of the values of this of this podcast is that I'm going to build a real tribe of people who really don't like me, even though they're not. <laughs> but one of the things that I I I I've begun to laugh at is, and I get this very much in the product world, is people who introduce themselves as serial entrepreneurs. Yeah. I don't think you've got that in the military. In fact, I wonder no. if the military would be a brilliant example. So serial yeah. entrepreneurs, I literally had this where I was at a, a meetup with some, some other product leaders and they said, hi, um, uh, my name is Bob and um, I've failed with three businesses. <laughs> and it was it was really interesting where this mm. idea of silly entrepreneur, if I can do it, in fact, in this case, if I can fail once, I can fail many times. But I've had this elsewhere where I've worked in a business where the owner made 10 million pounds, they sold the business. And so there is an immediate assumption, they must be a great leader. And mm. therefore, let's give them some money and they'll go do it again. Um, Google was brilliant at this product. And so they're going to be brilliant at all these other products. Not true. Well, well I mean, we, we, we have an, a current Petri dish with Twitter, don't we? Where we've, you know, the jury is out on is Elon Musk a brilliant innovator who has seen something that the rest of us have missed? Or was he very, very good in a particular field and is now potentially written off more than we can chew? We will see. Well, let's, I mean, let's actually, you know what, let's, we're, we're allowed to, 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 to idly chat these things. We're, oh, of course. We're the ones. What do you think about Elon Musk? Now, we, neither, I, think it, I think we should very be very clear here. Neither of us have ever met the guy. Nope. We don't know about him, so we have just as much data as everyone else. Also, um, I presume you're not a shareholder of Twitter. I'm not, not, no. So, given all of that, which means that we have absolutely either no right and no useful knowledge, mm. what do you think of him as a leader? That's a fascinating question. So, I watched a uh, Netflix documentary on SpaceX... And he came across in that, and I have no idea how you know how much influence he had in the editing Indeed. of it or whatever. But he came across as very passionate about the, not only the uh, the exploration of space and the success of the company, but also about the people involved. Um, and I came away with a really positive view of, of this, you know, quite radical but quite brilliant leader. And he showed empathy. He showed uh, compassion interest deep specialist knowledge he balanced direction with taking advice and I, I i was really quite impressed conversely to that of course we've also seen you know everything else that's going on in in the media and, and the twitter storm and, and and all of that and you know there is no doubt he has done some really positive things in the disruption of some really large sectors that needed disrupting. Um, but at an individual level, he has also showed, I think, some quite narcissistic tendencies um, that allude to the fact that he thinks that he's good 
not because he surrounded himself with the right with the right people and built the right cultures, but just on an individual level, he can make decisions better than others, and I think that's a really dangerous thing. Well, I mean, this 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 was meant to be sort of a fun little five minute sojourn, and it, and and I'll I'll tell you what I think, but to to, to phrase it a different way, he has demonstrated a bias that he believes. He is the magic factor in these things. And so yeah. I, I think there is an example of, um, you know, is there a regular inspection and adaptation? Does he have someone to tap him on the shoulder and say, you're sounding a bit crazy, Elon. Mm. You know, the idea that you're sleeping on the floor of the Twitter offices, there that demonstrates passion, mission, some great things. To everyone else says, I don't think you need to do that to build an amazing business. Yeah, are you, absolutely. Are you yeah, just yeah. a bit crazy. You fired a bunch of people and, and all these kinds of yeah. things. So I, yeah. I think I, every even when we sort of branch off and talk about these different areas, I think these concepts that we talk about in this case, you know, heuristics, bias, and diversity, I think is really important. I, I, I tend to agree with you. By the way, I. I think had admiration. I think what SpaceX has done is an example of everyone said it couldn't be done. It was done. I think likewise, um, everyone said that, um, you know, in terms of Tesla and cars, that would never be a success. And he demonstrated that. I think he he risks being in that category of, of leader of Steve Jobs, perhaps more so, which is, the, the history books will say he was a genius unless mm. he sort of implodes because he did these amazing things. And I agree he did. But that doesn't necessarily make him a good leader. And, and here's the question I always ask. And I, I've i seen this so many times with people who are declared to me to be great or brilliant. And that is, I'm not going to discuss whether they are great or brilliant. I'm going to say could someone else have actually done it even better? In other words, mm. could you have been Tesla without actually going nearly bust? Yeah. Could you have been, could you have acquired Twitter without frankly being a bit of an arse and firing a bunch of people and vocally saying, I don't care and saying, well, you know, I think in the UK, allegedly, he just sent an email to people saying, get out of the office, which yeah. of course you can't do. So I... I I think he is he is Schrodinger's good leader and that he has elements of leadership which are very impressive. The personal He's both good and bad at the he same is time. Both, and I actually suspect that is true of all of all leaders. Yeah. The bit that is interesting is um is there introspection and is there a sense of this inspecting and adapting and and a concept we haven't really talked about today is who who helps the leaders say okay that's a crazy idea yeah versus I've I've always wondered this is this is my my final sort of idle thought maybe for for this podcast which is I have a secret fantasy that I am going to one day go into politics which of course I will never do and I feel really <laughs> terrible but here's a concept I wondered which would be really interesting which is it seems to me. Again, I've not done this, so I could be completely wrong. Often we will use our bias to say, go away and come up with a brilliant plan to do X, whatever X might be. And we have plenty of examples of X these days. My sort of fantasy is I would do this. And for every time I said to someone, go and make me a plan for X, 
I would send someone else unrelated to golf and tell me why a plan for X was a terrible idea. Because what I yeah. really want is I want someone who's passionate that it's a bad idea yes. to tell me why it's a bad idea along with the person who's passionate that it is a good idea and then leave me to say, okay, to help break my bias, I want both I want both arguments side by side. And it's not yeah. because I'm some I need balance and I need fairness. Forget fairness and yeah. balance. But when you place these two things together, often you'll go well, this thing that I thought was good is clearly a terrible idea because now I look at the information against. Yeah, I really shouldn't do that. So we've we've talked about military leaders um, and how they can be quite susceptible to this because of the ranks, because of the structures. Um, they can become quite susceptible to groupthink because it's very difficult to stand up to a senior military leader. So in military planning, we've developed. A method of doing exactly that so you will be familiar with the term a red cell but it is exactly that it is the idea of taking a plan taking a concept and then picking holes in it you know and, and literally being cynical about every aspect of it and some of that will be valid and some of it won't but the, the discussion that it generates means that you're not um, what you're not doing you're saying oh excuse me colonel you know I think I think your plan is rubbish what you're doing saying you've asked me to look at this here are where i think all these flaws are or what if this happens the next stage is to war game where somebody actually acts as the enemy and tries to win against that plan we i think we need to explore that i i think that's a whole topic because i think i I would my, my sort of my final thought for the day is i don't think business does that at all and if someone's out there going oh we do it all the time in my experience, and I've now been doing this for more than 20 years, I don't think we do that. I think people lay lip service yeah. to that. And actually, there is a bias that says, if I if I challenge that idea, it's a negative thing, rather than challenging that idea, either will reveal its flaws or more likely make the plan better. Yeah, I think absolutely. there's an assumption yeah, that definitely. once I've made a plan, yeah. you better just follow it. So I, I run workshops where I teach people how to war game plans, how to red team plans, um, and, and I agree with you. I think that there's not enough of it going on. That's a subject for another podcast. I think before we end, we want to get back to uh, heuristics and biases. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Are you afraid of sharks? Am I afraid of sharks? Yes. I am... Uh, am I allowed to say yes and no? I am afraid of <laughs> sharks, as in if I was swimming and a shark was coming after me, I'd be afraid. That's but, but generically, more I believe more people are killed by Coke machines than sharks. So in that respect, I'm more afraid of a Coke machine than a shark. Okay, again, you've, you've got a preemptive where I'm going with this, because my next question was going to be, are you afraid of swimming? Um, and then the reality is... Um, you are 45,000 times more likely to die of drowning because of um, an injury jumping into a swimming pool or a medical condition or just poor swimming technique than you are to be killed by a shark. And yet I know far more people that won't go swimming in the sea because of sharks, wherever they are in the world, uh, but they're happy to take their kids to the swimming pool. And I think that just shows... It's a fabulous bias. It, it's, a, it's a bias and it's a heuristic because yeah. it's driven by our innate human nature to avoid predators. But also, it's 
a bias that we've learned from our environment because we make lots of films and we talk about shark attacks and it sells newspapers when it happens, whereas somebody drowning in a pool is not very newsworthy and it's a boring film. So it's a combination of biases and heuristics. And on that note, I think we should we should conclude. Um, thank you for joining us once again. If you've liked what you've heard, please do tell your friends, subscribe, get them to subscribe. We'd also love your interaction as well. So if you want to join the conversation, please send us your stories, your ideas or suggestions for future topics. And you can follow us, suggest these things, get in touch via our Twitter, which is at Battling with Biz, Biz with a Z. But for now, though, that's it. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.